Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by Vaughn Diaz. Born in Puerto Rico and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, she explores food, culture, and identity as a writer, documentary producer, and author. She's contributed recipes and essays to a number of cookbooks, and her work has been featured in notable publications like the New York Times, Food & Wine Magazine, and Bon Appetit. She's also been a reporter for NPR, StoryCorps, The Splendid Table, and so many others. She wrote her culinary memoir, Coconuts and Collards, Recipes and Stories from Puerto Rico to the Deep South, and is currently working on her second book. Hi, Vaughn. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Jen. Can you please introduce yourself to listeners who may not know who you are? Sure. Um, So I'm Vaughn Diaz. I am a writer, cookbook author radio producer, and food studies professor at UNC Chapel Hill. And are you currently still teaching Chapel Hill? Right now I'm on sabbatical because I'm working on a book project. But yes, I am I am still with the university. Um, and you and I first met at a food event in the middle of Mississippi um, at the Southern Foodways Alliance. When did you know that food was going to be a thing for you? Gosh, you know, it kind of took me by surprise. I, you know, I'm a lifetime eater. Um, I, I, I love food. Um, I always loved food. I was always a very food motivated person, but I had really no idea that this would become such an exciting wide open landscape for me until, um, until I was in my thirties. So I started my career in, in social justice work. Um, my undergrad degree is in women's studies. And early on, I knew that I wanted to dedicate my um, my life, my work to advocacy for women who had survived violence. Um, I'm the, the daughter of a survivor who's the daughter of a survivor, like, like way too many Latina women I know, um, way too many women of color. And, um, and so I was, um, that's what the direction that that I took my my career at the beginning um, throughout my 20s. And somewhere along the way, um, you know, I had a job that I didn't love and and realized that that storytelling, um, which was not language that I had at that time, but um, that journalism and storytelling were um, were actually really of interest to me and, and that it was possible that I might actually do more good in my life telling the stories of um, of the people who until that point I'd been an advocate for or providing direct services for than I could do in person. Um, so I, I went to journalism school. Um, I went to NYU. I'm very fortunate, very privileged to have had that experience and gotten to do that. Um, I had a great experience there. I learned to be a radio producer and, um, and started to really sort of merge the world of the things that I was really passionate about and inspired by as an advocate and storytelling. And, you know, some of my earliest reporting was on LGBTQ homeless youth, um, immigration. Um, I I started reporting soon after DOMA didn't, um, or sorry, soon after um, the DREAM Act didn't pass in 2010. And so- Was this this your work with StoryCorps that you were doing or with someone else? Not quite yet. No, I started Mm -hmm. out um, as a radio producer for Feet Into Worlds, um, which is um, an immigrant storytelling and journalism project based out of previously based out of the new school. And but really, I, you know, was freelancing. Yeah. So when when did I know that food was going to be a thing for me? 
So I got to a place where, you know, I, I've always had to work. I, I come from a family where there's, you know, there aren't, there, there were never resources for anyone to, to, you know, to take care of me. I always had to take care of myself. And so I, um, I finished journalism school. I was freelancing, writing about a lot of things. Um, and, I, but I had this feeling in my stomach, like, um, pun intended that, that, that there were stories about food in me. I just, I didn't quite know how to, how to get to them. Um, I, I started out sort of trying to write some things. Um, and the, I don't know, my, my first attempts at writing about food were pretty corny and, and just didn't, didn't quite resonate with me. And so I just kept trying. And so right around this time, uh, my grandmother, who since passed, was uh, experiencing some pretty advanced dementia and as a result of, of having Alzheimer's. And she had been, for me, um, throughout my childhood, my, my culinary muse. She was really the, the person who taught me um, about flavor. And she certainly taught me process, right? How to, how to cook things, how to smash garlic in a pilong properly, you know, um, how to make picadillo, how to fry plantains. But really, um, it was her, she had a, a, an incredible palate and, and cooked all sorts of things. And so when she developed Alzheimer's, um, when she developed dementia, she lost all of her ability to cook. And so right around this time when I was sort of trying to find a way to write about food, I thought about her and how I could sort of capture this taste memory, this like this memory of flavor that even if she couldn't cook, she could, she still had that same palate. Like she was still um, loved to eat. And, um, and so I, you know, sort of concocted Puerto Rican Julie and Julia approach um, to capturing my grandmother's flavor memory by cooking my way through this classic Puerto Rican cookbook called Cocina Criolla. And whenever possible, I, um, I was lucky to get to have her, her copy which uh, her copy was from 1962, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. It was originally published in 1954. And, you know, and so it was just all scribbled and all sorts of little notes and, you know, splatters of tomato sauce and olive oil. So I, you know, I started cooking and I started talking to her whenever I could um, about what I was cooking. And it gave me this really kind of remarkable opportunity to connect with her at the end of her life in a way that we had like a shared language so that it, you know, it sort of didn't matter how much her memory was fading in terms of food. Cause we could, you know, I could call her and be like, that, that, like, you know, I'm making this, it's turning out this color. Does that sound right to you? And she'd be like, no, nena, es que quizás cocinas es mucho, you know? And I'd be like, okay, well, I'll try it again. But so that's how I got started. And, um, and I, I started writing um, just about the experience of, reconnecting with her or connecting with her differently um, at the end of her life. And really what I found was that uh, food had been for some time for me, this real gateway between the American South where I had grown up and, and, and Puerto Rico, the Island where I was born. And yeah, that's what I was about to ask you because some, a thing that I connected on, we were both born elsewhere, me in Brazil, you in Puerto Rico, but raised here in the South. And like, you don't really belong anywhere. You don't belong there. You don't belong here. And then also kind of exploring your identity. It, you would go in the summer and spend time with Tata, right? And cook, which were kind of 
these like crash courses in Puerto Rican cuisine. And, and, and recently in your most recent New York Times article, you're, you were really talking about that, about how Rico really has your soul. Talk about finding the identity through the food during those visits from the South to Puerto Rico as a child. Yeah, I mean, Puerto Rico is such a complex place and, and, and the South is also such a complex place. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like I really came from two places that um, have a really intense histories, really connected histories as a result of, of enslavement and, um, and plantation farming um, and, and plantation um, economies, but sort of more, more to the heart. I grew up going back and forth between these two really intense places, right? Suburban Georgia and, and bustling, you know, San Juan, Puerto Rico. And the, the food of these two places was wildly different, right? Um, the flavor po- profile of Puerto Rican food is intense. You know, it's all sofrito, sazon, cumin, tons of salt, pork, root vegetables, but above all, intensely flavored food. Puerto Ricans like a lot of, of really layer flavor onto their food. And the Southern food that I was eating, because I, I don't come from a Southern family, right? So the Southern food I was eating was largely in cafeterias at in public school or, you know, at cafes or at my friend's parent, you know, things that my friend's parents prepared. And so I, I wasn't actually eating what I now understand to be like really excellent Southern food. I was eating, you know, sort of fair to Midland, you know, regular old instant grits um, with American cheese and, you know, kind of moderately okay barbecue and, and, and mushy fried okra and, you know, like um, just not, not the best versions of things. And so when I would go to Puerto Rico, I remember so vividly the like experience um, as a kid of getting ready to go to Puerto Rico where like I was just thinking about the food. I, <laughs> I was just thinking about, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to have alcapurrias, which are um, root vegetable fritters that are often stuffed with seasoned beef or crab. I would think about just the taste of the combination of sofrito and pimento stuffed olives and raisins, which is like a really frequent combination. I would think about just coconut. Yes. I, I spoke recently with a holistic chef who said that she doesn't know any female who doesn't have a disordered relationship with food or their bodies. I, mean, I certainly know I do. And as I near 45, I feel like I'm finally getting a handle on it. Um, and especially having a nine-year-old daughter, I better get a handle on it right now, which is what I also keep saying. Did having a, a mother whose eating style was different than you affect you? Or just did you have, what was your relationship with food growing up? Oh gosh. You know, this has come up for me recently. So I actually, I wrote an essay for the book Rage Baking. That is the the first time that I have really publicly in any way talked about having an eating disorder. And that book came out, gosh, Rage Baking came out last spring in the, right as the pandemic was was descending. Um, but but in that essay, I spoke about this this kind of um, complex relationship that I've heard a lot of other Latina women um, in particular talk about, 
where like the, the food of our, the food of my culture, at least the traditional food of my culture is quite heavy. And I understand better now that that is because Puerto Rican food is so indebted again to, to food that was provided to enslaved workers. Right. And so it's, it's, um, and then, and then past the time of enslavement, it, it just is food of workers. Right. So, um, and food that was created on an island that has incredibly limited access to ingredients and to resources as a result of shipping regulations, most recently with the United States. And, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of canned stuff, lots of processed stuff, lots of rice and beans, lots of meat and everything, very, very little fresh produce, frying as a technique, lots of stuffing things in things and then frying them, you know, very, very delicious and also very, very heavy. And I think that the way that my mom kind of dealt with that as a kid was that she started to eat less, right? And then, and then as an adult, that sort of just like became a way of being for her. But for me, I think it got complicated and then shifted in, in, in adolescence when I became a teenager, because it, like when I would go to Puerto Rico or when I would have access to Puerto Rican food, I would just like shovel it in my mouth. Ma- I would just gorge myself on it because it was so delicious to me. And and I don't know, in some ways I sort of feel like maybe I was engaged in this process of like literally ingesting my culture, right? Like I was just mm-hmm. like, give it to me. And so what happened, right? Like I would go to Puerto Rico for the summer and I would come back like pounds heavier, you know? Like like my mom would be like, tienes ahí un, un, tienes una dona ahí en la barriga. And I'd be like, mom, <laughs> It doesn't help that that you're talking about my 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 muffin top right now. Um, but but so like eventually, you know, I as a teenager, like so many teenagers I know, you know, I didn't quite look. Teenagers today have access to so much information about body image, but when I was growing up, it was just like just don't eat, right? Like mm-hmm. that was the message, or or like limit what you eat, and there was no um, Ashley Graham to own your no. your bikini. No, 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 no. And and there also wasn't like really good information about intuitive eating or, you know, I don't know, like I grew up, I'm like a child of the 80s and a teenager of the 90s, right? And, and I just remember, you know, that there was kind of all this judgment about what and how you ate, but there weren't really alternatives, you know, like it was just everything had cheese in it or, you know, if you wanted to be vegetarian, cheese, right? Like that's what you ate. And I am, you know, really fiercely lactose intolerant. Um, I know that now and I don't, I don't even budge. I don't, I don't even take DK the pills because it just, it, my body's just like, please don't put that in me. But just growing up, I hit a point where, you know, it's like I had my first little boyfriend. I really liked him. I want to look cute for him. I got concerned about my, my shape. I had always been thicker, right? It's just how I'm built. Um, I came out this way. My mom is a thicker lady too. my sister as well, you know, that I just, I didn't know what to do. So I started like controlling my eating at a, a really extended period of time where I was bulimic off and on. And that was the way that I, that was just the way that I knew how to deal with not having access to, to healthy food or, or to, you know, um, folks who could sort of present a healthy body image to me. And, and I also couldn't really, you know, it was like, I couldn't negotiate the heaviness of the food that I loved, right. With like 
how it made me feel in my body, um, the fact that I knew that it was like really fattening, you know? And then the other thing, which I think we, we've talked about before, is that there's this like really um, kind of irritating culture, um, at least amongst Puerto Ricans, of like, they will make you a plate that is like spilling over with food, right? <laughs> It is yes. like the biggest plate of food you've ever had, but then they, but then like two seconds later, they'll make a comment about your weight, and you're like, Gorda. yeah, I'm like, you just gave me like pernil and arroz con gandules and and uh-huh. and yuca con mojo <laughs> and tostones and this thing that's fried with cheese in it, and then this other thing, and like, it's literally falling off the plate, and you're insisting that I finish it, <laughs> but then the, you know, like, and anyway, um, so all of that to say, like, it it was just. For me, it was it was really confusing. And I think that that moment in my life of being a teenager and dealing with body image um, and dealing with having an eating disorder, reflecting on my mom, you know, basically like also just having this really troubled relationship with eating as I came into my own and started cooking right for myself. That's when I really started trying to figure out how can I get these flavors into into things that I can eat? You know, like, how can I get the, how can I infuse my food with the spirit and the energy and the flavor of Puerto Rico without it having to be, you know, a papa rellena, which for folks who don't know is, you know, mashed potato that, you know, typically already has some kind of butter in it, stuffed with ground beef that's been cooked with all sorts of seasoning and deliciousness, formed into a ball and then deep fried, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes they put cheese in it too. Delicious. (laughs) It's delicious, right? And but you can't eat it every day. You, you know? can't eat it and, every day. And, and, and it's also, it's like you can, and I, and I know this because this is what I've been doing for years now, you can get all of that flavor into, into something without it being something that ultimately is going to give you indigestion. You know, I mean, because that's the other aspect of this too, right? It's not just about weight gain and body image. It's also about like what feels good in your body. So can you tell me about your first cookbook, Coconuts and Collards, and how you got to writing that? Yeah. So Coconuts and Collards, Recipes and Stories from Puerto Rico to the Deep South is my first cookbook. And I have been saying that since I published it because I was like, I think I have another one in me and maybe another one. I don't know. It's my first cookbook and it is a, it's a, it's a culinary memoir. It's a narrative cookbook and in many ways um, tells the story of my personal journey through a exploring Puerto Rican cuisine and identity together, right? Of exploring the ways in which um, food had formed such a crucial part of my identity in both um, growing up in the South and and being born in Puerto Rico and spending time there. Um, and it also very much tells the stories of the women um, in my life. Um, my grandmother, my mom, my sister, my, my childhood best friend's mother, who was really important to me. And when I started thinking about the recipes that would go into this book, I, you know, sort of naturally was like, oh, I have to put the traditional stuff in there. But very quickly, um, you know, going back to what we were talking about a moment ago, I knew that I could only put recipes in that book that I actually wanted to cook and eat. Um, that it, it didn't make sense for me to have recipes in my cookbook that were things that I didn't like or that I that gave me indigestion. Um, (laughs) And so that's why there are a number of things that aren't in that book. That's why there isn't a recipe for flan 
anywhere, even though flan is, you know, like probably the most, you know, beloved of desserts that we make on the island. And my mom makes a killer flan. And I would have been delighted to have put her recipe in there, but I'm like, no, I can't eat it, you know? So I sort of started with, okay, what are the traditional dishes? Which of these do I like the most? Why do I like them, right? That sort of became the initial inquiry. And then the second inquiry was like, how are these things tied? to to the the kind of fundamental thesis of the book, which is that the South and Puerto Rico are deeply connected um, as a result of our shared, you know, African and, and, and indigenous ancestry. And so I started looking for recipes that told that story. And then again, were things that I really like to eat. Um, and so while I cannot eat, you know, flan, um, I can eat some fried chicken, and um, and and I, and I and I love fried chicken. I also really make some killer ribs, you know. And so it's like this is. I think this is sort of what I meant by part of what I was saying earlier. It's that eating what your body tells you it likes, what sits well in your body. Uh, I think that we're moving into a space in in American culture where we understand that that's the way that we should all be eating. And I'm you definitely can... practicing intuitive eating. You know, I mean, yeah. that's that's what I've been doing in my own relationship and journey with my body. And it feels so much better than these endless cycles of shame. Like I spoke with Julia Tertian about mm. good mm. and bad food and how yeah. it doesn't need to be so, so black and white. It's really life changing. <laughs> Actually, yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, part of what is part of what emerged for me through coconuts and collards was that for Puerto Ricans in the diaspora, um, our relationship to Puerto Rican flavors, I think in many ways, you know, I'm not unique in being tied to Puerto Rico through food. I think that many of us in the diaspora prepare arrocungandules and pernil over the holidays because it's like, mm -hmm. it's how we stay connected. And, and so with that, I found that a lot of Puerto Ricans are sort of like very, very proud about like, which are the Puerto Rican dishes and how they're prepared. And sometimes have like a little bit of judgment if you, if you don't eat this, or if you're not into that, or, you know, it's, you know, te gusta la tripa, if you don't like tripe, you know, I'm just like, I just don't, I can't with the mondongo, you know? No, no, no. Um, but I, what I found through coconuts and collards is that it is, and I don't know that I knew this until I was completely done with it and, and, and started to actually talk to people about it when it was out, that it is actually our responsibility to adapt our cuisine. Cuisine, mm. to quote my friend um, Cruz Ortiz, Cuadra, eh, Cruz Miguel Ortiz, food is, cuisines are alive, right? And to keep them alive, we need to adapt them because we are changing, the planet is changing. We have so much more information now about what our bodies like and remaining, I think, often too tied to tradition, particularly when your tradition comes from such a troubled place as it does in Puerto Rico in the South, right? Where it's, this is food that was created under, under fierce experiences of, of duress, right? Um, celebrate it, love it, and also know that like things can and should evolve. Um, I've just been watching a High on the Hog, oh, um, it, the new you know the new Netflix series with Steven Satterfield as a host, and you know the the inimitable um, Dr. Jessica B. Harris. And I was reflecting while watching you know Steven go on his journey to to understanding right that like so much of, of how Southern and Puerto Rican cuisine was developed was 
here's the remnants of this pig for you to deal with, right? What are you, how, how are you going to make this delicious? Mm -hmm. And within those dishes, you see a tremendous resilience. Um, mm -hmm. and, Oxtail, for instance, now it's oh so my gosh. expensive and, and it didn't and, used to be. Oh my gosh, it's so expensive now. And at the same time, right, that's not the only way, you know, it's, it's, it, to me, it's, you know, we humans have m multitudes within us, right? And, and so it's, of course, celebrate the, the resilience and the, and the deliciousness of what, what people made. Um, and my my next cookbook, um, Islas Cuisines of Resilience, really focuses on the ancestral cooking techniques that folks on islands use to make food delicious. Um, and I'm, I'm learning so much about how really, really basic techniques can really glean incredible results with limited ingredients. And I'm seeing this all over the world. And when it comes to Puerto Rican cuisine, in many ways, um, I've, I've long felt like traditional Puerto Rican cuisine is just sort of stuck in time. Um, and so it's the responsibility of folks like me and like my, my peers in the space, chefs on the island, um, chefs in the diaspora, you know, here on the mainland, to, to play with these flavors, you know, to explore where else that ingredient is is delicious, you know, like ribs with barbecue sauce, right? My coconut collards recipe, which is so similar to Kalaloo, right? Which is not something that I grew up eating, but, um, you know, is such a, a hybrid of, of Puerto Rico and the South, you know, collard greens are, I feel like are synonymous with the South, coconut is synonymous with islands. And when you blend those two things, for some reason, they taste awesome together, right? There's like some something in the collars. I love coconut milk with collards. I mean, it is just, I mean, I just do a chickpeas. I like do like this Indian Southern thing. But something I did, I don't remember where it was, but I did see you uh, say that even in Puerto Rico, though the land is changing and, and what is being farmed and grown there is changing. So you can still maintain that connection and, and push the cuisine and evolve it if, if that kind of stuff is happening, no? Definitely. I mean, and folks on the island, um, I'll tell you right now, I'm, I'm like moderately connected with folks on the island, largely due to COVID. Um, I've tried to keep up with, with the people I've been keeping up with, but, but the island is, is really struggling, be it a part of the United States or not. The response to COVID in Puerto Rico has not been an appropriate response. Um, and it certainly has not been the response that Puerto Rico deserved. Um, it has not, they have not received the same attention that, that U.S. states have received. And so, um, I, you know, I've, I've remained in touch with folks. And for some time now, there has been a, a renaissance of, of young farmers and, and young cooks who have been taking back the land and, and recultivating it to grow things that grow really well there. And Puerto Rico, in that way, folks on the island are, are really, I think, seeing a shift. I don't know that I can say, and having spoken to my um, my friends and colleagues out there, I don't know that it's as widespread as anybody would like, but certainly among like younger generations, like folks my age, I think there's a real consciousness around um, the, the agricultural potential that Puerto Rico has if there was sufficient, you know, investment in all that's mm -hmm. needed in order to grow things there. So I'm, you know, definitely seeing some shifts and and definitely seeing some shifts in what I saw served in in restaurants um, the last time I was on the island as, as COVID was descending. But um, but yeah, I mean, I really believe it's our responsibility to to move the cuisine forward. And even when creating, um, even when making traditional dishes, 
it's also our responsibility to to reimagine the preparation, um, to to sort of um, look closely at how dishes were prepared and and sort of rethink them. Um, one example I can give you is when I was working on when I was starting coconuts and collards and looking closely at cocina criolla and looking closely at the at the recipes. Almost every single recipe I saw had so much oil in it. It was like absurd amounts of oil. Um, and I, I was looking, um, the, my, my fried chicken recipe in, in coconuts and collards is based partly on, um, on the cocina criolla recipe. And, but the original recipe called for has something like, I don't know, like four or five cups of lard and then deep frying chicken in that lard for an hour. And like carnitas, you know, like chicken carnitas. No, see, <laughs> chicken Like, yeah. I mean, and I, I just like, and, and I saw over and over again in the recipes, I was like, okay, this is, you know, why, why do we always do this? Why is there always so much oil in there? Why, like, do you really need to put jamón cocinado in everything? Like, do you need the, the taste of smoky pork in this? Can you, um, one of my, like, um, simplest sort of vegetarian hacks um, is um, is to use smoked paprika instead of ham. And, um, you know, it's a very different flavor profile, but it's also for me, it's cleaner, it's brighter. Um, sometimes pork, like smoked pork in things sometimes can taste a little dank to me. And that's just not my palate. You know, I, I as, as much as I tried to be different than my mother, I very much have, I think, <laughs> I have like a, a hybrid palette between her and my grandmother where it's like, I, I, I love all of the intense flavors, but um, my body likes cleaner, lighter, brighter flavors. My body likes a lot of vegetables. And, and so, you know, um, I, um, in my, um, a, my recent feature for the New York Times, 10 um, Puerto Rican essentials, I offered 10 recipes. And, um, and in fact, I would say that that, that collection was much more traditional than coconuts and collards, and mm -hmm. and that's partly because that was that was that was the assignment, right? Like, yeah, what are the what are what are to you the essential dishes of your cuisine? You know, but and it was I started, your take on them. I mean, it still yeah. was your take on them. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, um, I um, I don't know how other people fry their fish, right? But my um, my fried fish recipe is, I mean, something that I've learned about deep frying that I think surprises a lot of people is that actually, if you deep fry something correctly, it is quite light, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, it, it shouldn't be heavy. It shouldn't be weighted down because the oil should be so hot that it just, you know, it cooks right away. Everything stays moist and delicious. And then you take it out and you drain it and, you know, and then it's not this heavy thing. And, you know, that's one adaptation. Um, I, you know, the alcapurrias recipe that I have, it's, it's another deep fried fritter, but stuffed with this delicate seasoned crab. You know, I, um, there are no veg veg vegetable recipes in that collection. Um, but in part, something I say in my essay is that in Puerto Rican cuisine, or at least like traditionally when I was eating in Puerto Rico and at diner, you know, like Puerto Rican restaurants here in the mainland, um, a side salad is, is what you get as your main vegetable. And I actually think that because of the, the intensely flavored, because Puerto Rican cuisine is so intensely flavored, a, a, a really bright side salad is a perfect accompaniment 
-hmm. right? Um, it's all about, you know, sort of intuition and moderation and balance and pairing. And that in many ways was my take. And it'll continue to be my journey. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with Vaughn Diaz. And right now you're working on a new book. You're taking yeah. a sabbatical from teaching food studies at UNC, where you moved from New York, where you were living, yes. and it seems to be going very well. And yes. this one is more about common cooking techniques that tie together the islands of the Caribbean, no? Which I find so fascinating and totally spot on for what I'm doing here because it's relationships, right? Can you talk yeah. about what led you there from coconuts and collards? Yeah, I love islands and I, I love my island, but I have had the, the privilege of traveling to other islands in my life, um, namely Cuba, where I did field research as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, um, Hawaii, where I traveled for work, and Bali in, um, in Indonesia, where I, I traveled um, on vacation many moons ago. And when I went to each of those places, I had, I had, a, I had a feeling, you know, this just sort of intangible feeling of like connection. It was like the, the air felt kind of similar. The vibe of the place felt kind of similar. And I think like for me, I, I found myself over the years being like, oh, you're an islander, me too. And, I, and, and especially with other Caribbean folk, right? Like I was like, yeah, we're Caribbean. But there, there actually isn't in the Caribbean like a real sense of unity like that, right? Mm -hmm. in, in the Caribbean, largely because of colonization and, and the interests of, of colonial powers, there isn't like a uniform Caribbean identity. And honestly, there is not a uniform Caribbean culture. There are many, many, many Caribbean cultures. And so anyway, long way to say, I've just, I've, I've, oh, I've been fascinated by islands for a really long time. And, and when I traveled to them, I felt this deep sense of connection. And so when I got the opportunity to think of another book project, immediately the connections between islands came to mind. And I was like, okay, well, what are the connections? And very quickly, I, I, I realized that they're all isolated. Um, they're all colonized. They're all environmentally vulnerable in, in ways that's worsening as a result of climate change. They are often, you know, ports of call and have a lot of people coming in and out all the time. And tourism, right? So many, I mean, in, in again, all over the world, islands have this shared experience. And, and then when I started looking at the foods of these different places, um, what I found oftentimes was simplicity, right? I found that oftentimes the dishes were had um, not too many ingredients um, and not incredibly complicated processes. And more and more, um, as I've been researching and cooking through some of these different recipes, what I'm finding is that we are all connected um, culinarily by a, a series of truly ancestral cooking techniques that are among the earliest ways that human beings learned how to cook. Um, fermentation, pickling, um, smoking and grilling over open fire, in-ground pit cooking, steaming things inside leaves, um, and of course, deep frying. Um, these are all techniques that are shared across islands. And certainly these techniques are used outside of islands. But what I've found is that people on islands make particular use of these techniques and, and they make use of them in ways that, that create really robust, really big dynamic flavors using just a handful of ingredients. And, um, and so, 
you know, the the book, which again is called Islas Cuisines of Resilience. As of right now, it may it may change its name by the time that it comes out. <laughs> as um, it is, as, as often it is. Happens, yeah, as often happens. Um, actually, Coconuts and Colors had a different name, but it will be organized not by island because there are thousands of islands on this planet. Um, it'll be organized by technique, and mm. so each Brilliant. chapter will um, will focus on one place, one story. Um, and one technique, and um, and it will include, you know, uh, some something of a primer, right? Like how to do this in in the most basic way. Um, you know, for example, the, the chapter on marinating will have sort of a bit of a Venn diagram. If you have this acid and this aromatic, and you know, like here's your marinade for this kind of protein. And then we'll include recipes from all over the world. Um, it'll be a hundred recipes in the end. It'll probably be more, honestly, because there is just so much. There's just, it's just so much good food. Um, for example, um, Filipino barbecue marinade has chilies and pineapple juice and soy and garlic and ginger, a beef skewer marinade from Madagascar with um, papaya juice and Coca-Cola, just all kinds of really um, robust dynamic flavors and, and largely focused on things that grow locally, right? Because again, the isolation, the colonization, the trade dynamics in these places leads to really limited resources and folks make incredible use of what they have on hand. So um, it it feels to me like a very natural progression from, from coconuts and collards because, you know, in that, in, in, in my first book, I was really just exploring my family, myself, what, what we cooked, what we ate, what I like to eat. And, and, Islas is is sort of a next step in in looking at okay well what what connects us as islanders how do we how do we expand if I step out of Puerto Rico in the south right what mm-hmm. else do I see are these mm-hmm. connections are do these connections exist in other places and um, and I you know I also wanted to say that in a hopefully soon to be post COVID world right because um, we're not post COVID yet. But no, um, but we are you know ho- hopefully emerging soon. Um, for too long, you know, food has been valued, I believe, based on um, based on a a series of European ingredients and cooking techniques, right? Um, like for 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 too long, I believe we've held European food and European cooking techniques to to among the highest standards. Hundred percent. In, again, in a, in a post-COVID world where we where people are cooking more, where I hopefully people have gotten a better sense of how to how to cook with limited ingredients, what to make when you literally can't get something right. Um, that we should be looking to islands for inspiration for how to do this right. Like where where do you look to figure out how to cook after a, a, a crisis? Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico has a hurricane every single year. You know, it's not if, but when the hurricane is going to hit. And so these islands and their and, and the resilience of the people there um, really serve as, as a model for how to make things, make food really delicious in, in the most challenging circumstances. And um, and I, I think that that will be that I think that'll resonate with folks when we come out of this particular crisis, this particular crisis. <laughs> 
Is there yeah. anything else that comes up for you about food and relationships that I did not ask you? I do want to ask you just if you could think about that question while I ask you this one. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, you talked about how in Coconuts and Collards, you talked a lot about your relationships, your mother, your sister, your grandmother. What what role does food play in your relationships today? Like in your romantic relationships, is it like a big thing? Are you with a food person? Like I'm not with a food person, which people are always really surprised. <laughs> you know, Like they're always like, wait, is this just your work or is this something that permeates everything for you? Yeah. How do I answer this briefly? So I will, <laughs> I will say that I love to cook and I, I love to cook for and serve my loved ones. Um, it is just among my um, greatest joys um, on, on this planet. And, and this is something that I, I absorbed from my grandmother because this was how she was. She, she just loved to cook for people. It's a love language. Yes, it's, it's absolutely a love language for me. And so over the years, I, you know, I've, I've, had, had, a, I've had some relationships. Um, I, you know, I was married and divorced and um, was, you know, I'm recently out of a longer relationship and, and in a very new relationship now. So, you know, like no names or, or defining factors. <laughs> but I, but I, will, I will say this, that, you know, my, my ex-husband was vegan when I met him and his being vegan actually transformed my cooking because I, I, I wanted to cook for him. And I was like, how do I make food delicious when it's vegan? Mm-hmm. And then I actually learned how to make all food taste better because I got, it's like, you, you have to do a lot to vegan food. I mean, that's not necessarily true, good ingredients, but like, you need to think about it a little bit. Um, you need to think about it much more than regular. Food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I was in a relationship for some time with somebody who was a very good cook and who cooked for me. And that was a, a new, different experience. And and I and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm currently in a relationship with somebody who eats very similarly to me, but is not a food person by any stretch, um, but is a very good eater. Like, Maybe, maybe the best mm, eater the best. I've ever, oh my gosh, maybe the best That's eater a good combo and has they're not picky. Like an incredible appetite and could eat any, really could eat, like he probably eats four times a day, like full meals of food. And it's so much fun because um, I don't need to eat that often, but it means that it's like, there's just always food around and, um, and it's like a really joyful experience. It's also very joyful to cook for him because he like just loves everything. And so I've had sort of both experiences. I, I was in a relationship with a chef many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think now I'm almost 40. I value someone being a good eater and, and having sort of a similar, a similar kind of palate to me more than I used to. And maybe that's just like aging and, you know, it's like everything, <laughs> everything kind of gets simpler and, and more similar. I don't know, but I, um, I'm really enjoying this, um, this moment and this relationship and this, this food relationship, um, because it just always really open. And there's something really exciting about that. And, you know, I, I will say having dated chefs and, and been in relationships with food folks, yeah, you know, it's 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 also a great experience. Um, it's you know, it's as when you're a cook, it's awesome to be cooked for. And it's uh, weird. Yeah, it's very weird for me. I get yeah. very controlling. I try not to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I used to be. I think I used to be, and now I'm just like, this is just stuff I can't eat. No raw onions. Don't put dairy anywhere on my food. Um, the raw onion thing is hard. 
people don't get that, but I'm just like, I just can't have it. I love Rania. And so does my daughter. She eats them. I know. Like, she, just will eat. she just loves it. But another thing I did want to ask you, and then we'll wrap up yeah. um, and you can just say anything that you want because I know you have things to do. But yeah. um, how has being back in the South affected your relationship with Southern food? Because it's been a minute since you lived in the South, right? Oh, gosh. You know, I actually haven't thought about this. So this will be really off the cuff. I mean, I, I was away from the South for 12 years. Um, I lived in um, in the Bay Area in Oakland for two years and then in New York for 10. And I'm from, you know, I grew up in Georgia, but I live in North Carolina now. I love biscuits. And, <laughs> um, and Biscuitville, and, is that North Carolina? Yes, yeah, Biscuitville. I haven't been. Besha loves them. I haven't been. Um, but I, you know, they're... I love Southern food and I love biscuits. And I do think that the South has the market cornered on breakfast and, and always will. Um, Pattied sausage knocks link sausage out of the park. I don't understand. In the North, all they eat is link sausage and like uh, things that don't make sense. More to crispy me. surface area with yes, patty exactly. sausage than a link. But yeah. you said earlier that when you were younger, I think the reason I'm asking this is you said when you were younger, Southern food to you you perceived it as bland in comparison to Puerto Rican food. But I think you and I now know that Southern food today is very different than the Southern food, like at Po folks that my mom was taking us to go eat when we were like, you know, embracing Southern culture in our own Mexican immigrant Abs way. Absolutely. But um, now like just like coming back, like is your appreciation even greater? I mean, I know that, you know, Southern food is great because we've been at these foodways, you yeah, know, yeah. symposiums where the food is ridiculous and so vegetable forward. Yeah. What is your perception now as an adult? Yeah. You know what I, this is because this is off the cuff. I'll tell you, this is a, this is a COVID answer because ultimately I arrived in North Carolina three months before COVID struck. Right. So wow. I have not, been able to, I have not really eaten at restaurants here. And, and the restaurant that I go to most often is my friend's restaurant, Boricua Sol, which is a Puerto Rican <laughs> Southern restaurant. It's like it's a less than 10 minute drive. You like what you like. And their collars are dope. Um, but, um, but I will say this, I really missed Southern ingredients. And, and there's like little stuff. Like when I was in New York, I couldn't find boneless, skinless chicken thighs to save my life. I don't know why. I, I would often have to go to like really specific stores, but there's just little stuff. Like it's like the, the abundance of vegetables, the freshness of vegetables here, the freshness of the fruit here is, is by and large so much better. Um, particular cuts of meat that I just had a really hard time finding um, when I was in New York. You know, in New York, I found all the Puerto Rican ingredients. My heart could just guava paste and all kinds of stuff. And here it's just like the, really the simplicity of being like, I can always find boneless, skinless chicken thighs. And just like, I, I don't know, um, I love grocery shopping and that has been my primary experience here. Um, so, I mean, you know, between these ingredients that I took for granted, right? I was like, don't all grocery stores just have these things? Um, a, they don't. And then, you know, also just coming back to, to, to like perfectly made Southern biscuits is just um, really has been a joyful and like, like really well done pimento cheese. Um, like when I let myself, when I feel like hurting, I, I will like let myself have like one bite and find it so delicious. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I would say today because I cook 
and I grill, you know, and I have access to all this like beautiful fresh produce all the time. The, the mm-hmm. farmers markets in North Carolina are gorgeous, you know, I mean, and, and, and this is something that, you know, I think we know about the South, but, but folks don't realize so much food is grown in the South. And so mm-hmm. farmers markets are incredibly seasonal and, and you just get such like the produce that is in season at any given time in the South is so delicious when it's, when it's at its point, the radishes, the, the, you know, the like um, patty pan squashes, once they come in season, the peaches here are like, you know, these are, these are things that I really, I had only mealy peaches the entire time that I was in New York. Right. And, <laughs> and, and just sort of little stuff. I don't know. Those are the things that really have stood out to me is, um, you know, just walking into the, my regular grocery store and seeing rhubarb right next to okra. That wasn't my grocery store in New York, you know? Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I'm, I'm grateful for all this knowledge that I have about, um, about these ingredients now, because, I needed that knowledge under, <laughs> under, <laughs> under COVID. I've been, is there anything else that comes up for you or anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah. Thank you for asking. So on Friday, July 23rd, I am I'm going to be in conversation with Maricel Presilla um, alongside Dr. Jessica B. Harris um, hmm. for an event called Food Dialogue um, that's being hosted by the New York Botanical Garden. Um, it'll be an online um, event. I believe that that tickets are already available on the New York Botanical Garden's website. Uh, forgive me, I don't remember at this moment if there's a, I, I believe it's a free event. Um, but mm-hmm. um, a Maricel Presilla, for folks who don't know, is really one of my my culinary muses. She's a, an incredibly um, distinguished Cuban chef, um, brilliant food historian, and, um, and has been really one of my heroes. Um, and I sat alongside her and, and, and Dr. Harris on the inaugural um, African uh, Cuisines Advisory Council at the Culinary Institute of America this spring. I think it'll be, we always really enjoy talking to each other, but she is a wealth of, of knowledge, um, particularly around the ways that, you know, Africa and, and Latin America have intersected over time. And your cookbook is going to come out tentatively. My, co- my cookbook is slated for March, 2023. So many, many moons from okay. now, but you know, mm-hmm. um, hang, hang on to it. And, um, and for folks who are interested in, in co- copies of coconuts and collards, um, they're currently on back order. There was a, a sort of a, a, a rush sale after my um, my feature came out in the New York Times, and they should be more available by by July. It's a beautiful book. I definitely own it. Thank you. And what about if they want to keep up just with you? Do you have a website you'd like to direct them to or any social? Yeah. Um, so you can see more of my work um, at my website, which is vondiaz.com. Um, there are also um, some recipes that have been published both in my book and in other places um, on my website, as well as a catalog of my work from over the years, some of my radio work for StoryCorps, articles I've written for The Times, um, and, and various other freelance pieces. And you can also follow me. Your on, TED Talk. My TED Talk is there. And you can follow <laughs> me on Instagram at Cocina Criolla or on Twitter. I'm less active there, um, but but I'm there sometimes um, at Von Diaz. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Vaughn for joining me. 
If you want to keep up with me on social media, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find me. Next Wednesday, I'm joined by Shamika Ayers. Shamika is a self-proclaimed Jill of all trades. A bit ahead of her time, she created and produced the Sugar Coma Festival, which was an experiential dessert tasting festival in Atlanta, which expanded eventually to other U.S. cities. Shamika called her diet at the time reckless and had an insatiable macaroni and cheese tooth to accompany her avocation. But when she was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in 2019, she had to examine her overall health and wellness habits, including a complicated relationship with food. These days, she spends most of her time evangelizing about reversing diabetes with small lifestyle changes. Again, we're back on Wednesday, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.